Welcome to the Cosmic Goodie Bag. My name is Carla Cherry. I am your host. We are talking with spiritual seekers about cosmic theories, their personal path and expertise. Our mission is to help people expand their consciousness and their awareness and provide tools to help them find their personal power. Do you want some personal power? I'm tired of watching superhero movies. Don't you want to have a little bit of that for yourself? It is ascension times, people. We'll be talking ETs, multidimensional beings, Parallel universes, we cover it all. It's all in the bag. Why am I doing this? Um, I don't know. Sometimes it's the red pill. Sometimes it's the blue pill. Sometimes you just slip and fall down the rabbit hole and you get a timeshare there. So I just want to give a quick shout out to all you guys who've been listening to the podcast. This is podcast number four and it really means a lot that you guys have been listening and thank you for all the positive feedback so far. If you have any comments or feedback, please put it in the Facebook page. Be sure and subscribe to the YouTube channel, all that stuff. Eventually, I'm going to be up on Apple iTunes whenever they get their shh together. Yeah, I just want to say thank you. Um, I was really scared to start this podcast at first, terribly nervous. Eventually, I'm going to be on video. So, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, climb on out of the shadows and get into the light with my face. Anyway, Freddie Silva is an incredible human being. He's written several books. I got to meet him at Contact in the Desert. I saw one of his lectures. It was incredibly enlightening. Enjoy. Lots of exciting things coming up, by the way, you guys. Big hug to all of you. I hope you're enjoying the Instagram post because I do be putting in time. Enjoy the interview. Freddie Silva is a leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, crop circles, and sacred sites with an emphasis on their connection to consciousness. He's a best-selling author of five books in five languages, a documentary filmmaker, and a and an art photographer. He's a keynote speaker at conferences like the International Science and Consciousness Conference, as well as a regular guest on the History Channel, BBC, and Gaia TV. In addition, he leads private tours to sacred sites in places like England, Portugal, Yucatan, Malta, Egypt, and Peru. Welcome, Freddie Silva, to the Cosmic Goodie Bag. Hello, Carla. Hello. I know you're a super busy guy, so thank you for taking the time out to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's very hot here today. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are you calling in from? Uh, Portland, Maine. We're having a very unusual hot day. Uh, we don't do air conditioning up here. That's why everybody, like 5 million people move here in the summer for the rest of the world. <laughs> and now it's super hot. You, th this world is unpredictable, is it not? <laughs> All right, so I want to jump into the questions. You made a drastic transition from advertising executive to lead researcher in ancient sacred sites. Did you wake up to a personal mission, and what were some of the specific signs? Uh, I, I just think that we're kind of hardwired at some level uh, before birth to do something here on Earth. And uh, some people are very fortunate, and they get to recognize it pretty early. Uh, some people take the whole life to be whacked on the back of the head until they end up doing what they're supposed to be doing. It kind of happened to be in the middle of the phase. Uh, I was always into ancient mysteries. I never really accepted, uh, even as a young boy, uh, what I was being told. Uh, something just didn't ring true. And it kind of stayed with me. And I went through my, you know, my years, uh, I want to be a musician with long hair and uh, not making much progress. I, I was a graphic designer. I was um, an art director, a, a copywriter, and eventually a creative director in advertising. Um, you know, made a lot of money and uh, saw a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, I just wasn't happy. Mm. And every time I used to get fired, 
for having a conscience, I used to sit around scratching my head and uh, reading all these books that have been piling up for years. And then suddenly one day, I just decided that I'd had enough of the, uh, the way the world was going and uh, got into um, pyramids and ancient civilizations uh, and certainly into crop circles. Uh, and then I became a best-selling author uh, with mm. my first book. So that kind of, it was a really good, confident way in which to really start doing my alternative career. And I haven't looked back since then. I've been on tour permanently for 20 years. Uh, you know, and even today, my touring schedule is still very busy. And of course, it's moved on from there, from crop circles to ancient temples, to um, uh, flood mysteries, to initiation mysteries, even the Knights Templar. Uh, all these things are connected. Okay. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was very fortunate that I kind of, in the middle of my life, decided that uh, there's something better to do. And uh, I found my little trail. So, well done, whoever was looking after me. Excellent. So, why crop circles and who is making them and why? Oh, um, oh, it's a huge subject. Uh, it's still as important today as it was back then. I mean, I, I should uh, also paraphrase that uh, the crop circle phenomenon, um, it was a conversation. Uh, there really have not been many real crop circles for the last 15 years. This, I mean, it'll totally upset a lot of people, but uh, I'm here to kind of tell the truth. Uh, this is why I gave up my career, to try and give people an alternative to the nonsense that's been given out there. And um, the first time I saw a crop circle on television, I knew exactly what I was looking at. And it sounds a bit weird, but I knew exactly what it was. Uh, it's like a key was activated inside. And I began to spend more and more time going back to England to research the subject. And uh, the, before I realized that I had a book on my hands, mm. I had no intention of writing a book. I just wanted to just be part of the research. And something was leading me. Uh, I had many experiences inside them. Uh, I was actually taken out of body and levitated in one of them. Really? And I, I wasn't really looking for this stuff. I didn't even know this stuff was even possible. And it kind of led me to understand that there's a very big message going on here and one that has nothing to do with hoaxing. Uh, the hoax angle has actually been perpetuated by people within uh, certain uh, elements of government, not the government, but certain elements of government. We know they were paid to say that they had hoaxed everything. So the, ho the hoax angle is a complete fraud. Uh, it turns out that there is a science behind the real crop circles which cannot be imitated by people to this very day. Really? Uh, things that we look at on, you know, on YouTube and on uh, the internet and lovely pictures, but that's not what it's about. It's about what's happening inside them and also what's happening closely to the, uh, to the plants and to the soil. There are things here which defy the laws of physics, and that's why it's so interesting because we have learned so much from these things. Uh, we've applied, we've discovered new healing modalities. We've discovered new mathematics, new systems of propulsion. Uh, so this stuff that used to be science fiction is now actually facts. We're actually implementing information from another level of reality. And um, I call them people who make the crop circles because of my experiences with them. Um, most people call them aliens. Uh, I would say that they are actually interdimensional people who are very much alive on their level of reality as they are on ours, but because of the way that the different frequencies work between our uh, planet and our dimension and other levels of reality, we have a hard time seeing them because they vibrate on a different level. Uh, it's kind of like uh, you, know, you and I are taking a walk in the woods and uh, you can see the trees and you can hear the wind, but you can't see the wind. And yet the wind has its own particular level of frequency. That's 
Um, that's how I would sort of equate the people who make the crop circles in our terminology. They are around us all the time, but like a radio station, they're tuned to a different frequency. We just have to step up to that frequency if you want to connect with them. And when you do, it's magical. Uh, it's nothing that the ancients didn't know about. Uh, the Hopi, the Zuni, the ancient Egyptians certainly were in contact with these people and they're written down on as talking about them. So for me, they're not really alien. They're actually part of our spiritual family. And uh, it's part of an education and it's part of a warning as well. So that's why I kind of followed that uh, research because it led to all kinds of wonderful uh, places, uh, including understanding why temples were built. Wow. So what, can you tell me, when you levitated, were you taken by surprise? Like, can you give me sort of like a personal experience that you had? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had no idea this stuff was even possible. I mean, sometimes you read about this stuff, but when it happens to you and you're not expecting it, it's not coming from your own ego. It's actually really quite happening. Uh, I still have the bump on the back of my head to prove that I hit the ground with quite a thud oh, wow. uh, for several days and it was witnessed by people. But uh, no, at the, um, I was literally out of body for 45 minutes. Uh, and I know that because I had a cassette player uh, playing a little quiet music when I was in the middle of a crop circle in the middle of the night, uh, just asking some questions about, you know, what is this about? You know, what makes this phenomenon tick? And uh, the answers that I got back from this uh, um, experience is what formed the backbone of the book. And I had no idea about this stuff until I started scrubbing the stuff down. So I feel very fortunate that I was handed the information to a certain degree and then proved it with hard science. Um, so that's really kind of what happened. And these people uh, that I met, uh, which are clothed in this beautiful sort of, uh, they're like tunics made of silk. They're very elegant, very tall people. Uh, I actually had the chance of meeting him again in another experience in the Great Pyramid when I was there with a group in complete darkness. Uh, we were doing a bit of cleaning up of the Great Pyramid. Um, it's, it's part of what we do to sort of um, fix the sacred places when people do stupid things in them. Uh, these are very highly tuned temples and people go there and give them frivolous attention. Uh, there are you know, tourists running up and down these places you know, smoking cigarettes and, uh, you know, that's not what the temple is about. So there are groups that go around, you know, cleaning up the energy of places. That's what I do. Oh, wow. And one particular occasion, uh, we were in the Great Pyramid in total darkness by ourselves. And uh, after you know, tuning into the frequency of the building and uttering uh, certain tones, uh, these people came out of the stones. And I have three people who also witnessed this. Uh, so it's not me making this up. There were three witnesses. And again, we're in complete darkness. And we can see them as clearly as I can see you on my screen right now. Uh, and that changes your life. Because again, yeah. you're not expecting this to happen. Uh, I know other people, including scientists, that have also ex um, had the same experience. So it's not a one-off thing. It happens to a lot of people. And again, it, it means that you're... These experiences tend to happen when you're on the same level of frequency as the temple. There's an interaction that takes place, and that's why you know, I love what I do, and that's why I teach what I do, because I would like other people to know how it works, and it can happen to anyone. And which temple were you in? Uh, this was in the Great Pyramid, in the actual King's Chamber, uh, where, of course, no one was ever buried. Uh, the whole place was really designed as a big shamanic initiation temple, uh, along with other uh, things. I mean, the pyramid is a very, very, very big place. Uh, it's mostly hollow, uh, and uh, it was obviously built for multiple reasons. 
but that was one of the main ones. But you can really have this experience anywhere, uh, depending on where you're at in life and also what your intent is. And so when you say this experience, did you gain certain knowledge? Did you up level a frequency? Did you, what, what exactly happened with, it, what, with whatever you can share? Oh, all of the above. Uh, it really depends what uh, you're searching for. In my case, I'm trying to become a better teacher uh, to, to communicate what I do. So I go to places and I just say, well, uh, I would like to do my work a little bit better, know a bit more about the things that need to be learned and correctly. And that information eventually comes to me in one way or another, and it forms the basis of my books and all my DVDs and all my programs. Um, so it's, it's, it's a learned experience that I get from the temples and the information that is hardwired into them. And then I back it up with actual research to make sure that there's not just, it's not just a personal experience that I'm having, but there's also an experience that is actually written down in science and also in, in the mysticism of the local cultures. So when you combine those three things, you have experience, local knowledge, and the mysticism of the place, and you create a very, very coherent story. Wow. So I have to ask you, um, in your book, The Divine Blueprint, you talked about these earth hotspots, um, temples that are serving future generations who've lost their spiritual compass. What do you mean by earth hotspot? And you said that the energy can be scientifically measured. What do you mean by that? Essentially, the, uh, there was a big plan uh, that was, goes back all the way to the Great Flood, uh, which is about 11,000 years ago. Uh, there are texts that survived this cataclysm that talk about the survivors, and they're all groups of um, gods, uh, as they call them, and uh, these people had complete control over the properties of nature. They could levitate rocks at will. They could do extraordinary things, and the idea was that they wanted to, and I quote, rebuild the former world of the gods, and it was their charge to go around the landscape and actually pinpoint the spots on Earth where the Earth's telluric currents, uh, what we call the energy lines, where they cross, because at those spots, the laws of physics are a little bit more subtle. And once you know how to apply the right stone, the right geometry, and the right measure and create temples, uh, you begin to hardwire this energy to that spot. So they become uh, almost like portals into another level of reality. They're, I call them um, self-help centers because there are places where when you forget your purpose in life or you lost your way or you need a little shot in the arm to, you know, to give you a bit of confidence uh, in this very cluttered place called Earth and humanity, you know where to go to connect with that information. And it was their plan to create these hotspots all over the face of the Earth and build these monumental temples so we would know where to go when we'd lost the plot. Uh, so that's why they call them the navels of the earth, uh, or as the Hopi call them, the spots of the fawn. It's a very elegant term. Mm. And again, if you don't know how to apply your uh, God-given intuitive ability, because we, we can all do this quite intuitively uh, and understand what this energy is. Uh, in fact, right now where I'm speaking to you from, I'm literally sitting on top of one of these energy climbs. Uh, it's, it, follows, uh, it follows everyone. We're sort of drawn to these places and it kind of helps me with my work, I guess. Uh, and um, it basically allows you to connect uh, a little closer to that veil to another level of reality and connect and recover information that you can then apply on a daily level. So it was part of a very ancient technology that was given to us by the survivors of this monstrous flood that we keep 
having this amnesia of it. Uh, and yet we seem to remember there's something fundamentally right about this. Uh, and it's now been proven in the geologic record that yes, it, there was a, a big flood that happened 11,000 years ago and it's in the geological record. So it's a matter of fact, it's no longer fiction. Uh, in fact, my people in uh, my guides in South America, in Central America, whenever we broach the subject of Atlantis or Lemuria, they'll say, oh yes, uh, we actually still teach that in classrooms today because that's where our people came from. Mm. Uh, so, and they're amazed that silly Westerners think that this is some kind of a strange myth that doesn't exist. But you know, in their point of view, it's, well, the myth is there to remind you of a story that happened so long ago in a way you can keep remembering it. It's like a, a film, you know? I mean, we could sit here and have a very boring conversation about a technical detail. You won't remember that. Mm -hmm. But if you add detail to something like Star Wars or uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, well, you're going to remember that story. Mm -hmm. uh, and the information is hardwired into those wonderful methods. So this, for them, the myth was a way of actually transmitting the fact that the, the origins of these sunken continents are absolutely real. So it's a wonderful way to sort of uh, keep the information going over many thousands of years so you don't forget where you came from. Well, who, who are a couple examples of the survivors? Who are these people? Oh, you find them in texts all around the world. They uh, usually come in groups of seven, uh, uh, with one person that seems to be the central guy, making the eighth. Uh, he is usually married to his wife, who's also his sister, which sounds a little bit dodgy. Uh, but this is all symbolic, okay? And it's funny that the same story appears in cultures across the entire world. So if these people weren't talking to each other, how is it possible they have the same story? Uh, one of the big mysteries in life, and uh, they describe them as seven sages uh, or seven shining ones. Uh, in Egypt, they're called the uh, seven followers of Horus. Uh, they go by the name of the Aku Shemsu Hor. And again, you have these groups of enlightened people that after this catastrophic event, when humans reverted to a state of barbarity, they come out of nowhere on ships across the ocean uh, from a, a sunken land everywhere and uh, they teach civilization to humanity. And it's kind of interesting because uh, modern uh, archeology span and his history now is beginning to accept that sometime about a thousand years after the Great Flood, it's odd that humans suddenly, out of nowhere, spontaneously discovered agriculture, animal husbandry, the decoration of temples, the creation of massive temples with monstrous stones, um, astronomy, astrology, mathematics, all the things that form a civilized society. Uh, were we all just having a shamanic moment or did we inherit this from somebody else? And the conventional uh, wisdom now is going to the view that we inherited this from people who already had that understanding and they were forced to share it with a few surviving humans. And in fact, it's the, the basis of a book I'm writing at this very moment, or trying to anyway. It's going to be a big one. Uh, so it's the shared experience that's found all around the world, and it's far beyond just the transmission of the myth. This is actually something that happens to different uh, cultures in different parts of the world. And do you think they're getting help from, I mean, you say you don't say alien or ETs, you call them people. Um, in terms of off of Earth, where do you think they're coming from? Well, that's the big story, isn't it? Uh, I'm looking through ancient stories. I was kind of just reading one about the Hopi, for example, and the Zuni. 
And uh, I was having a little chat with a good friend of mine called uh, Clifford Mbuti, who was the uh, elder of the Zuni. And uh, we were having, um, sharing the same ideas from around the world. Obviously his culture in the Southwest of America talks about the fact that uh, there's a big connection to Orion. And I was saying, well, you know, it's interesting that in New Zealand and in the Pacific and in the Far East and also in the Middle East, there also is the connection to these people associated with the belt of Orion. So are we saying then that these are time travelers? Are they actually space people? Uh, or are they actual physical beings that were here already on Earth that came from somewhere else but were somehow very human? And that's the big question that uh, we're all struggling with right now mm. uh, because they are addressed as human-like. Uh, they were all bearded, uh, which is a bit weird in South America because there are no people with beards in South America. So when you get the bearded people coming out of nowhere, they're not local. Um, they were red-headed or blonde, uh, blue-eyed or green-eyed, which are features usually found by people from around the Black Sea area. Uh, and those people I've traced all the way back to before the flood to a divine bloodline mm. of people who were half human, half divine. But that still leaves us with the question, who were these divine people? So we can extrapolate from the remaining stories that we have inherited that these people appear to have come from somewhere else. And Orion, again, keeps coming up in the stories. Mm. Siri comes up in the stories. But I would say, and I'm only speculating at this point, that these people were very humanoid, but they appear to have come here from another level of reality. And I suspect that the way that they described the belt of Orion, that these people knew about uh, space travel. They certainly were dressed very differently and they were able to locate not just the hotspots of energy on Earth, but they also understood about these tunnels that connect the space. And I believe this association with Orion is part of a portal that connects to other portals in the universe. And having said that, NASA actually admitted as much uh, well, at least half as much when in 2008 they actually released a press release and they said that they've actually uh, located around the periphery of the Earth uh, portals, and I stress the word portals because they actually wrote it like this, that open between the sun and the Earth every eight minutes. And they may actually continue to go, go to other parts of the universe. Now, here's the rub, because in 8000 BC, the Tamil of southern India wrote about that, they talked about these serpents, which is how they describe the energy uh, paths. These serpents that slither along the earth, which are also mirrored in the sky, which are the arrows of sorcerers. And what they were meaning was that anyone who's able to connect with a source, like a magi or a magician, understands energy. You can understand this energy that flows along the earth. And when you do, you can connect to the energy that connects to the sky, and from there, you can go any way you want in the universe. Oh, wow. So NASA finally has found them the means with which to validate the American text that our, our forefathers were and foremothers were skywalkers, literally. They could connect from this planet to other levels of reality. And that's what I find interesting. Uh, where it goes from there, it's, uh, we don't know. So hopefully by the time I finish writing the book, I'll have a bit more. <laughs> that's exciting. Oh, my goodness. Because um, yeah, well, is that you're not sort of following, you're following a trail of breadcrumbs. Uh, it's very easy to find information to back up an idea you already have, because you can basically make the information fit your paradigm. Uh, that's not what I do, and that's just why it takes so long to write a book. 
I latch on to something which is very anomalous, and then I find, what if, you know, what if this is true? And then you follow the rabbit hole and follow the breadcrumbs and see where they go. And that's what I love about the work I do because I have no idea where I'm going. I am led by the facts. And I always tell people this in interviews. I never tell the truth. I tell you facts because then you can figure out the truth for yourself. Mm. And then you're in a much better position to figure out what's really going on. Otherwise, you're just following me. And that might not be a good idea <laughs> if tomorrow I find out I was wrong. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah, I have to, I wanted to ask you with this type of thing, um, in the beginning, did you face ridicule and how did you push through that for people who are looking to get into the same type of work? What type of advice would you give them? Oh, you're always going to find some ridicule from people who have a completely opposite point of view. Uh, you're never going to convince anyone uh, who has really figured out their mind. Uh, they call themselves skeptics. Except the skeptic, the real meaning of a skeptic is someone who does not form an opinion. Mm. So any skeptics out there, be careful of what you call yourself because you're actually quite wrong. <laughs> uh, if you're saying, well, I don't believe you because I'm a skeptic. Well, you have formed an opinion. Therefore, you can't be a skeptic. You are a number. <laughs> you can't convince those people. They will believe what they want to believe. Uh, what I tell people is you've got to develop a very thick skin and not take it personally because everybody has an opinion and the internet is full of opinions and don't read all of these message boards and things because most of this stuff is just people's opinions. They're not basing it on any fact. Uh, just follow your own path, follow your own uh, career and then figure out what makes sense to you. And I usually say, if it makes you feel happy, then follow it uh, and practice it and apply your information and let the people who believe that uh, understand your information and follow that trail. Mm -hmm. uh, people say, well, you know, you're full of nonsense. Then all you have to say is, well, okay, prove me wrong, you know? And so far I've been very fortunate. And they, again, I like to believe that I do my homework quite well. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the dissent that I've had has been very, very minimal because, and that's my argument. If you think that I'm wrong, then prove it and I will adapt my theory because that's how we grow in, in, in our education. We you know, formulate theories, we bring in more information, and the more information you have at your disposal, the better your theory. But somewhere along the line, new information will come forward from somebody or somewhere, and you would uh, look at your information and say, well, I was almost right. Now let me adapt that theory a little bit better. That's called science. Mm -hmm. You know, it's open-minded to the fact that you don't know everything, and I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's uh, the important thing is to keep that open-mindedness and don't worry about the heretics and the uh, the people who are trying to bring it down because they have their own agenda and eventually they'll fall on their own sword and they usually do so just follow your follow what makes you happy and eventually you'll get there well on that note in your book the lost art of resurrection what do you mean by res resurrection is meant for the living? And do you believe that Christ was violently nailed to the cross? And also, why did the church ban um, this art? Oh, that's a big question. Um, the art of lost art of resurrection really came from discoveries I was making, walking through the different temples around the world, uh, there were a lot of anomalies. There were a lot of places where uh, orthodox uh, historians will claim that these places were burial sites. Uh, the Great Pyramid is a classic example. 
uh, except there's no proof. There's no evidence that anyone was ever buried there. And uh, many Egyptian pyramids are the same way. In fact, a lot of them, uh, I can point to at least three that I know, were found sealed. Uh, the archaeologists broke through the seals. They went to the sarcophagi. The sarcophagi was sealed. There's nobody inside them. Mm. So clearly, you do not build rooms with sarcophagi. All of them are sealed and the bodies are missing. Uh, if that's uh, the case, then we should be looking at the grave robbers because they're damn clever. <laughs> you know, they're able to break in and not leave any trace. Um, so you have to question these things. And I began to question um, the, uh, these myths of traditions of initiation that talked about the risen, the dead, and they went back to 8,000 BC in Japan, which puts us a long, long way away from the Christian view of things. So I began to question uh, the whole authenticity of the Bible, uh, which is should because there's a lot of good stuff in it, and there's a lot of really bad fake stuff in there, created by a lot of you know, misogynists, basically. I mean, there's talk. I mean, they talk about you know stoning women to death if they don't like them. That's not a good basis for a compassionate religion. So. <laughs> you begin to look at the books that didn't make it to the Bible, written by the apostles themselves. And you wonder, why didn't these books make it to the Bible? Well, if you read them, they are very heretical. They talk about the fact, uh, the apostle Thomas is a great example, the brother of Jesus. He says, um, anyone who believes in the, the, uh, the, uh, the that a body can resurrect from the physical death uh, and come back to life is confusing. A spiritual truth with an actual event. That's not what is happening, and that's not what happened to Jesus. He was also not physically nailed to a cross. There's another guy called Simon uh, of Cyrene, and even the Quran mentioned the same thing, and they have a high regard for Jesus. So that's a very much at odds with the way we've been taught. And uh, when you begin to look at the story of Jesus, it's very anomalous. And it turns out that he was a high initiate. And when you look at the information contained in the Bible and the language, a lot of it doesn't make any sense from a normal point of view. You have to look at the language from the point of view of initiation. And then it makes a lot of sense because that language goes back to the Zoroastrian tradition, to the Japanese tradition, to the Hopi, and all around the world. And the tradition is so ancient. And it talks about an initiation that took place over the course of three years where you learn many mysteries of the universe, including, by the way, uh, transforming matter, uh, which is why Jesus said that he could be in two places at once, and I for one believe him. Uh, but the final phase of the initiation involved going into a secret chamber or a sarcophagus, being drugged and having an induced near-death experience. And three days later, uh, you, uh, sorry, uh, and then during this experience, your soul literally leaves the body and it goes into the other world and is completely aware and awake, not like a shamanic dream, this is an actual physical experience where you actually are out of body in a near-death near environment. And uh, you then return three days later, completely aware of who you've spoken to, the information that you've received, and what your big purpose in life is all about. It's one of the biggest secrets in the mystery's teachings. And this is why the church wants to do away with this, because... There was a big fight with the Gnostic Christians at the time who understood what I've just said, and they wrote about it. And they were persecuted by the fundamentalist Christians. And I've always wanted to know, why is it that the fundamentalists were killing the Gnostic Christians? You shouldn't be at each other's throats if you're practicing the same philosophy that Jesus was practicing. Wow. 
Well, it turns out that the fundamentalists, which became the Catholic Church, uh, had completely misunderstood what uh, Jesus was doing because they didn't have any access to the inner brotherhood of the initiatory arts because so, it was a well-kept secret. So they basically wiped them out. And in order for Jesus to be accepted by the Catholic Church in the Roman world, uh, they had to make him into a god. That's not what Jesus ever said, nor did the apostles ever claim that he was ever a god. And Jesus himself never said that he was a god. He was an ordinary guy who did something very important, but then so did thousands of people before him. And he was just showing that he was a way, he was a method of achieving this enlightenment, which anybody can do, by the way. So in order to make Jesus palatable to the people of the Roman world, which back then governed pretty much you know, two-thirds of the known uh, world, um, they had to turn him into a god. They had to make him do extraordinary things. So what happened was, is that they took the story of a very old crucified God-man, uh, which was already well-known to the people of the Middle East, and they took uh, the name out of the equation and they inserted the name Jesus. And lo and behold, suddenly you have a guy that on the winter solstice uh, is nailed to a cross, sorry, is born on the winter solstice, uh, comes back again three days later, uh, they find us a man, and then he goes through a second ritual at Easter, where he's nailed to a cross, and he comes back from the dead. Unfortunately, they got it the wrong way around, because the actual initiation involved the first uh, trial, which was at Easter, where you basically go into your first uh, rebirth, your out-of-body experience, and you complete your initiation nine months later, just like a female gives birth uh, to, a, uh, you know, uh, to a son or daughter nine months later. And that nine-month period, of course, is the winter solstice. When you go for the same experience, you, you leave the body on the 21st of December, you come back three days later on the 25th, and you are declared risen from the dead. And the term literally means that you are no longer dead. You're no longer uh, you know, not seeing the bigger picture of the universe. You are now awake, aware of the bigger picture of the universe and how life really is. Uh, the Hindus still call this by a different name today. They call the people who have not had this experience the uh, corpses. And um, the, uh, again, the apostle uh, Thomas said, you cannot uh, wait until you die to have a resurrection. You have to achieve an experience of resurrection while you live. Uh, when you die, you'll get nothing. You'll just be a dead body. So that, in a nutshell, is how the church has completely overturned this very sacred concept. And uh, in doing so, also vilify the divine feminine, which is why Mary Magdalene, who was part of this initiatory cult, uh, she was uh, basically uh, turned into a harlot. Uh, that, again, is a complete diversion of what the true meaning of the original word was, because the women of, uh, that looked after the initiate during the out-of-body experience about 4,000 years ago uh, in Sumeria they actually presided over the person in an out-of-body state and they wore the red robe of the office and they had the highest level of office in the temple. And that's yeah. why a bunch of guys, ironically dressed in dresses in the church, wanted to do away with women. So you end up, you end up yeah. going from a beautiful religion called Christianity into this bastardized a religion called Catholicism. The two are not the same thing. And all you have to do is read the banned gospels to find out the truth. Uh, so in a nutshell, that's what was really happening. So the concept of the loss of the resurrection really is a, an ancient initiatic tradition that goes back as far as I can find out to 8,000 BC in Japan wow. when they were talking about the same thing, about the risen God-man at the winter solstice and at Easter.
Uh, it's, it's amazing stuff and it shows you how far we've come from this truth. That is amazing. Oh my gosh, that's a lot to take in. I'm gonna have to watch yeah, this over. That's a, that's a book in a nutshell. <laughs> and, and I'm gonna have to buy the book and really <laughs> comb through each page. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, because um, you mentioned that Plato practiced this ceremony. Um, uh, and then also, it, is there something that you can do now? Is like that, can the average person do this? Is there a toned down version of this that doesn't require like arsenic or narcotics? You young people always want to be <laughs> way to get there. No, there is no shortcut. Uh, and yes, Plato uh, was, uh, oh, he was an uh, initiation junkie. I think he did it three times. And he said, and I quote, that it helped uh, me shape my philosophical doctrine as well as, as spiritual doctrine. And that's quite something for a philosopher to say. Uh, Pythagoras, the mathematician, did it five times. Wow. He really did enough. Um, I ask this question to people in other parts of the world, uh, because I know in the Western world it's not practiced. I mean, the idea of inducing their death experience is the worst nightmare for a lawyer. <laughs> so in our society, no, that's been done away with. And of course, the, the, the hard uh, hand of Catholicism has wiped all that out. Uh, in, if you go to Central America and South America, the islands of the Pacific, yes, it's still practiced. Um, you have to meet the right people at the right time and uh, by synchronicity and wonderful magical event, you will bump into the right people who will say, well, if you're looking for an experience of initiation, um, here's the thing. It's not shamanism. It's not an ayahuasca retreat. You have to give up your life for a minimum of six months to do this properly. And they're quite serious because you're going... You, you're having an induced that experience. It's frightening. You've got to be in control of your fear, first of all. You have to control your emotions. Uh, that's the most important teaching in all this. Once you've done that, you can achieve anything if you can survive the ordeal. And actually, everybody did, which is why they would do uh, this for three years to get it right. So there are places in Guatemala where they still uh, do the narcotic, uh, which then brewed for several days becomes a kind of a poison. You have to know how much to take, and that's a huge responsibility for the shaman. And if you mess up on that part, not only would the person die, but the shaman gets disqualified. So mm. there is a very, very important part of the ritual, and these people spent years perfecting the technique. Uh, it actually makes you wonder how they learned how to perfect it in the first place. There must have a lot of uh, trial and error a long time ago when they were practicing how much of the poison you give someone before they die and before they actually have the experience, but that's another matter. Um, so yes, it is still practiced, um, but the nearest that you and I can do in our busy Western world is visit the ancient places because they are designed to literally get you into a space where you can feel the connection to the other world. Uh, you're there quietly on your own. Uh, and and I, I lead tour groups all the time every year and take people to give them a sense of what it's about. But to do it properly, you have to go there on your own in quiet time, uh, prepare with fasting, get your, your, your mind in a perfect balanced state and forget texting and the cell phones and all of that nonsense that gets you nowhere. You have to be in a place by yourself and understand what it feels like to be part of the actual temple. And I mean, feel the walls becoming part of your body. It's an extraordinary experience and it can be done. You just have to find the right moment in the right place. And when you do, even for half an hour, you suddenly realize you've been somewhere else. You leave these temples altered which is why the most important part of the temple is called the altar. Uh, you are going there to be altered. 
And there's something about the energy of the place, the geometry of the place that has an induced effect on your sense of perception. And it starts altering uh, through a chemical process who you are and why you're here. You literally feel, leave the building with something that I call uh, the tingly winglies. You literally feel very, very different to the person that you left. And after a while, you begin to realize when you get back to your daily life, I am not the same person before I went on this trip. Uh, I, something has changed in me. And you begin to question your daily life and your habits. And slowly, you begin to become aware that your viewpoint of the world is very different to everybody else's. And you're on your way. And I can point to so many people that have come on my trips. And some of them are junkies. They come on like five and six trips. <laughs> they can't get enough. Um, I'll take that as a compliment. And um, we, they basically go back to their lives. And I see them change over the years. They become mm. very different people. And you begin to realize the world that we are presented with is not how it is. And that's what makes the difference between you and the dead, or the walking dead, uh, as they call them. And uh, the fact that you are now alive, you have been risen from the dead. You can see the world with very different eyes. And you can't put a monetary value on that. Uh, it, this is why I do what I do. And I recommend it to anybody who really wants to make their life here on Earth valuable and, uh, and entertaining because there are great fringe benefits to what we do, uh, like seeing people come out of stones in the middle of the dark. And um, so it's something that I recommend if you really want to make the best of your, your life here because it's only a short life uh, outside of the Earth. We're talking, you know, billions and billions of years, and uh, you know, but for some reason, we keep coming back again and again. Uh, I guess we keep a bit addicted to this place. Uh, there's either good scotch here or really good sushi. <laughs> well, where can people find um, out about these trips? Where where can people um, book them? Oh, um, go to my website, uh, invisibletemple.com. Uh, all the books, the DVDs, the talks, the information—it's all there. You'll be there for months. Uh, kind of like an initiation experience in itself. Uh, and if not, come on the trips. You know, we have, a, we have way too much fun on these tours. We're, we don't do tourism. We have way too much fun. Where, uh, um, where are some of your favorite places that you go, that you take people? Uh, it changes depending on where, where I am in life and what I'm looking for, because each site is hardwired to achieve a different effect. Uh, I just came back from Utah, hmm. uh, uh, from Arizona, uh, one of my favorite places in the world, and it was one of my missions to take a hike to Horseshoe Canyon. They have very unusual petroglyphs there. 104 degree heat, luckily it's only 5% humidity. Uh, you get up at four in the morning and you do it. And uh, seven hours, and believe me, the end result is coming face to face with one of the most beautiful panel of eight seven foot tall people dressed exactly in the same way as I saw them in crop circles and in the Great Pyramid. Uh, and that's why I went there to meet my extended family. And it was a religious experience and uh, it was great. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, listen, um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to, um, to talk to me today. I can't wait to rewatch this video. And <laughs> I'm definitely... <laughs> what? I'm definitely excited to um, to share it with everybody because this is it's fascinating stories. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm a little speechless, but thank you Actually, so much for your time. And um, I'm going to definitely look up your trips and spread the word. And um, I hope to see you at one of uh, your lectures again. So thanks so much. Thanks, Sherry. Okay, bye. Be good.